We're in Job chapter 40 this evening, and if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands, and you can hear the Word of God taught tonight, but also be able to read with your own eyes. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you, and... uh, Be blessed by it just as we are. So we come to Job uh, chapter 40. We are in the middle of a two-part series of God uh, addressing Job. Remember Job in his uh, comments uh, as he was in his suffering. He was uh, kind of inclined to say in a lot of different ways and more than once that um, he wasn't that happy with what uh, God was doing in his life. And basically, uh, it wasn't, you know, like pure irreverence on his part, but he had bought into the lie that his friends had introduced into his heart, and that is that God only, uh, things like what were happening in his life only happened to those who had secret sin or hypocrisy. And Job, knowing that he didn't have secret sin or hypocrisy and yet was experiencing these things, uh, instead of honoring the, uh, the honor of God and protecting that, uh, he protected the argument of his friends and he dishonored God by bringing into question uh, the goodness of God and the righteousness of God in judging his life. The problem is God wasn't judging his life. God was doing a fabulous thing in his life that he had no idea what was happening all around him. And so God then comes on the scene as we saw last week and he uh, began as we saw his first address to Job. And his first address to Job was kind of put Job through a so you want to be God test. Well, all right, let me pose 70 questions and God posed uh, at least 70, maybe a little bit more, at least 70 questions of Job that anyone who wants to take God's place in the universe ought to be able to answer, kind of a, a minimum requirement, kind of a God SAT test. And uh, Job couldn't answer a single question. And that whole first address, and it's very important to realize, that whole first address, God is driving home one point to Job. And what he is giving Job is a revelation of the greatness of his wisdom. As demonstrated in the universe, in the stars, in the weather patterns, in animals. But the whole idea was, Job, look at the wisdom that is behind what you see, and do you possess the wisdom to even explain it, much less the wisdom to create it. And if you cannot explain the mystery of creation and the uniqueness of creation or control it, then you are not in a position to take over my role as the God of the universe. And so God gave Job a greater revelation of his wisdom. And then Job's response, as we saw in verse uh, uh, chapter 40, Verse 1, the Lord first answered Job, and he said, Shall he who contends with the Almighty correct him? Uh, He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And so, an invitation to answer any of the questions that God posed to him, Job answered the Lord, and he said, Behold, I am vile. You ever get in trouble like an elementary school, low, low elementary school, sent to the principal office? I am vile. I am small and insignificant, and I think I'm in big trouble. (laughs) And uh, so that was his answer. I am vile, which means small and insignificant. And he says to God, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. My mouth has gotten me into this much trouble. I don't want it to get me into any more trouble. Once I've spoken, but I've learned my lesson, I will not answer yes twice but I will proceed no further. And so he said, no, I don't have anything to say. And then the Lord resumes his questioning of Job in verse 6, and he takes on a completely different subject at this point. Um, Questioning number one had to do with questioning Job uh, concerning uh, wisdom and God's wisdom. 
And now in this second uh, questioning, it's going to address the subject of God's power. Does Job possess the power? Or he's already said, I don't possess the wisdom to run the universe or to take God's role. But, and now the question is going to be, do you possess the power to do that? And that's the point that God is going to drive home. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And by the way, there's a reason for all that. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And so it's the same introduction as he gave to his other address. And then God said, and this had to be, I think, particularly difficult for Job to hear because he was a great lover of God. God said, Would you indeed annul my uh, judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? God was communicating to Job. Remember Job, all the things that he was saying, all of his addresses, they were, they were public. People were listening to these things. And they knew that Job had a relationship with God, and so his words carried a lot of weight. And he had misrepresented God in what it is that he had spoken. And so God was basically saying, will you publicly condemn me and attack my reputation for justice by accusing me of unfairness in order to justify yourself, in order to make yourself look good. It happens all the time, by the way, where people will make in their statements, and especially when they're in a deep trial, they will say something that makes God look bad for allowing something or doing something in order to make themselves look good or look like they're the victim of something or the victim of God's unfairness or or his justice. And so this charge, basically, God is communicating to Job how he understood the things that Job were saying. There were an accusation against God's fairness and against his justice. And, and I think, again, when Job heard that, it really had to hit him uh, like a ton of bricks. He realizes that I have spoken publicly in a way that dishonors God, and I have planted a seed of doubt in the minds of the people that listen to me concerning the justice and the fairness and the goodness of God. And no one who loves God ever wants to do that. None of us ever want to do that. We never want to trip someone up in their faith or to believe God to be anything less than the righteous and fair and loving God that he is. And Job realized that he had done it. It reminds me of an Old Testament event uh, concerning David when Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him related to his adultery with Bathsheba. And Nathan spoke to D David and said, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, what you have done here is you've given an opportunity for those people who hate God, you've given them an opportunity to blaspheme God. And I'm convinced, again, David was not a perfect man, but he was, he was a tremendous man of God. He wasn't perfect, though. He made sin, great sin, great, great sin in his life, but he did love God. And, and David is a great testimony to us of how great God's grace is, uh, toward us and in, in, the, in the forgiveness and repentance and all. And I think personally that David would have rather died a thousand deaths than to ever have a prophet of God come to him and tell him that his life now was providing ammunition and opportunity for God's enemies to blaspheme God. And that was, it really, really would have pierced deep in his heart. And I think this statement of God really did pierce Job's heart, and it needed to. It needed to pierce his pride and his arrogance. It was represented in his, in his statements that he had made uh, concerning uh, the Lord. So it kind of raises the question, should a child of God ever, under any circumstance, should a child of God ever charge God with unrighteousness? Never. Never because he is never unrighteous. It's impossible for him to be that. If I think he's being unrighteous, it only means that I don't understand yet what I am in the middle of and what God is trying to accomplish through it. But no child of God should ever 
accuse God of unrighteousness, and Job had done that. And as we'll see, he not only regretted it already, but he will, you know, regret almost in sackcloth and ashes before it's all over. And so God continues now his so you want to be God test in chapter 9, or, or verse 9 of chapter 40. And uh, Job, God is challenging Job that if he is God and, and he has the power to be God, then uh, can he control the proud and the wicked of the world for even a day? He said, have you an arm like God that is strength like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Job, can you speak with thunder the way that God can? Have you an arm? Uh, 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 then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. And of course, majesty, splendor, glory, and beauty, those are divine attributes. God said, can you adorn yourself unfailingly with these characteristics? Do you have the power to do that? Do you have the power to live that kind of life, Job, yourself? And of course, Job couldn't as a sinner, nor can any of us. And then God said, disperse the rage of your uh, wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And so he said, Job, all right, you think you have the power to be God? then why don't you take on, for a 24-hour period, so to speak, why don't you take on the humbling of the proud in this world and the judgment of the wicked? Look on everyone who is proud, bring him low, tread down the wicked to their place, that is, to the place of death, hide them in the dust forever, bind their faces in hidden darkness, that is, take them down into Sheol, into hell after death, and then if you have the ability to humble the proud and control the wickedness in this world, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Now, uh, you and I can't even save ourselves. We can't even control our own pride. We can't even control our own wickedness in an absolute sense. That's why when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us the power to live an entirely different life because he brings a new nature into our lives. So Job is just like us. He can't even conquer the pride in his own heart or the wickedness in his own heart, yet let alone control it in a neighborhood or an apartment complex or in one city in the world, in the whole wide world. And yet God does it on a, on a daily basis. There's coming a day, the Bible says, in human history, when at the time of the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is going to remove his influence in this world through the church, through God's people, and that dynamic of the Holy Spirit, which is acting like salt on arresting the progression of rot and sin and wickedness in this world, that, that restraining force is going to be removed and we're going to have what's called the Great Tribulation Period. We won't be here for it, but a Great Tribulation Period where it will literally become hell on earth. We have no idea. The people that hate God, this kills me by the way, the people that hate God, they shake their fist at God, they don't believe in God, they, don't, they do not know what they owe to God in keeping the world as safe as it is, in humbling the proud, in controlling human history in such a way that when he does allow wickedness or he does allow pride, it is only in order that he can work it together for good and teach people about the necessity of righteousness and this necessity of holiness. But what God keeps a lid on in this world, everyone, whether they believe in God or not, ought to be thankful for. And, but unfortunately, one day, the, the, the great activity of God in that direction is going to be removed, and, but then it'll be too late for a lot of people. So God's power is demonstrated in humbling the proud on a daily basis. And it's interesting. Have you ever had God humble you? Oh, my. <laughs> no, we don't tell those stories. No, siree. Come here. 
Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's how I know the Lord loves me. But his, that, that work of humbling and, and the, the uh, influence against wickedness, God doing that on a daily basis. And then in this whole realm of power, he then tells Job, now look at the behemoth which I made along with you. I created him, Job. Now the behemoth here, the word literally means great beast. That's what uh, the animal is. God describes the animal as a great beast. And we're going to see that it really is a great beast. Now sometimes you can listen to studies related to all of this and, and uh, even pick up commentaries and things like that. He's going to describe two great beasts to Job, uh, the behemoth here in chapter uh, 40 and then the Leviathan in chapter 41. And some people look at it and say, well, are these dinosaurs because there's kind of flames coming out of their nostrils, as we'll see in a little bit, and that kind of thing. Uh, the dis- what, Job, what God is probably describing to Job here is what we know to be a hippopotamus, uh, the lovely hippo. Uh, they're, not that, they're not that friendly, by the way. And the only thing, this description in verses 15 through 24, this description that God gives here is an exact match, uh, matches no other animal in the animal kingdom except for a hippopotamus. Now, sometimes people look and say, it can't be talking about a hippopotamus because uh, of the difficulty of verse 17 that speaks of its tail, he moves his tail like a cedar. And so they think, oh, there's a description of an animal here who has a tail like a cedar. That's not what the passage is saying. It's saying he moves his tail like a cedar. So they say if, if, he, if his tail is like a cedar, then he's got to be a dinosaur or something other than a hippopotamus. The fascinating thing about a hippopotamus, he doesn't have much of a tail. But when he's in a hurry or when he's frightened, his tail will become absolutely erect like a, a cedar tree, absolutely straight in, when he's in that condition. And so it matches the description there in verse 17. He moves his tail like a cedar. His tail isn't a cedar, but he moves it like a, a, a cedar. So he describes this behemoth. He eats grass uh, like an ox. So his diet is he's an herbivore. And see now his strength is in his hips. I'll tell you, those are some hips on a hippo. You ever watch those shows? Say, man, I, whew, I'm not going to say anything else because you can get in trouble talking about hips in <laughs> any company. But those are some hips. I remember one time... I was playing, this is safe. I remember one time the Oakland Raiders had a basketball team that came to Napa, and then they put a Napa all-star team together to play them, and I was on that team, and, uh, and it, it was really a great game, and it was an awful lot of fun. And uh, so I'm used to playing with junior college players and high school players and all of this kind of stuff. And so we're at one point in the game where there were these two guys. They were linemen. And uh, I was at the top of the key, and there was a little opening between them. And so, boom, I'm going to hit that opening and go right to the bucket. Boom, I hit that opening, and I was on my back just like this. (laughs) So I think I have a little sense of what a running back feels like. Those gentlemen did not budge an inch. They said, did you feel something? So, I mean, stout, strong. So his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He's just built like a barrel and strong. He moves his tail like a cedar and the sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. The strength that is in those uh, thighs. I think the animal kingdom is amazing, by the way. And I like watching those shows and, and uh, I've seen some shows on hippos. His bones are like beams of bronze. I mean, those are some bones. No osteoporosis there, anything like that. They're like beams of bronze and his ribs like bars of iron. I don't know anything about firsthand about this, but uh, God did and I think others have too. He is the first of the ways of God in terms of uh, in, in uh, magnitude and in power. 
Only he that is God who made him can bring near his sword. Only God, the creator of this behemoth, this animal called the hippo, could, would ever approach the hippo with a sword and ever uh, think that they could uh, possibly have any hope of, of defeating this animal. And surely the mountains yield food for him. And all of the beasts of the field play there. Uh, in other words, his habit, habitat is kind of semi-aquatic. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade, and the willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage. He's able to just stand in a raging river and even allow that water to run through his mouth. He's not disturbed by any kind of a current like that. He's got a very strong uh, base, you know, of weight and gravity. He is confident, though the Jordan rush, gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes or one pierces his nose with a snare. And so, that speaks of the fierceness of uh, this animal, the fierceness of a hippo. He's very, hippopotamuses are very, very ill-tempered. And it's interesting to realize that next to insects and snakes uh, in, in uh, the world, uh, hippos kill more people in, or in Africa than any other animal. Uh, we think, oh, the lion or we think hyenas or something like that. But the hippo does. They just don't like people around them. And uh, they can make quick work of a person. It's interesting that they can weigh up to 8,000 pounds. Uh, that's, uh, that's four tons. That's a lot of weight. You don't want to... That's why it's, if you ever hit a deer, you can say, praise the Lord, it wasn't a hippo. 8,000 pounds. And fascinating that even though they're funny, sometimes you see them running. They, for short distances, they can run as fast as 30 miles an hour. That's something. That's a, four tons at 30 miles an hour. <laughs> I it, you know, and I, when you read statistics like that, you think, okay, how fast could I run? You know, as a human being, I don't think I could get up to 30. They're going to run you down in a short distance. And, uh, and of course, they're certainly uh, not easily intimidated. When it talks there in verse 24 of, uh, of the fact that can one take him by his eyes is the idea of it in the phrase, uh, in his eyes may refer to the difficulty of capturing the hippopotamus when it's submerged. You just see its eyes. You can imagine somebody coming up, getting a rope around it, and they've never seen a hippo before, and they think they've got something, and they don't realize there's four tons under that rope, and you're in trouble, buddy. Uh, that little boat you're in or the, your canoe, you're probably going to be lunch for uh, another animal in the animal kingdom. And so... Or it might be just a reference there in verse 24 to the fact that uh, because of the thick hide of the hippopotamus that most weapons are ineffective against it unless it's actually shot uh, through the eyes. And so the point that God was making with Job here is that God challenged Job to prevail against the behemoth before he ever thinks about taking on God. In other words, if you can't beat uh, this animal on any level in terms of power, you have no hope of beating this animal's creator who is God. You shouldn't even think about um, uh, uh, taking, uh, taking uh, God on. And then uh, Job is challenged to consider the Leviathan in chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Now, this, in my opinion, you can believe it to be whatever you want. I'm just here to give, you know, to educate a little bit and give you reasons why. But um, this is most probably a description of a crocodile. And so he describes uh, fishing for a crocodile in the first few verses. 
He says, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or a crocodile with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? In other words, a crocodile can't be caught with a line and with a hook. Can you put a reed through his nose? And the idea is to capture him and domesticate him uh, or pierce his jaw with a hook. Uh, Can you domesticate him or tame him? Will he make uh, many supplications to you? In other words, can you make him a family pet? And you know how cats and dogs will come up and kind of rub your leg that they're hungry or the dog will do whatever to communicate whatever and all. And uh, does a crocodile have that same kind of temperament that it could be made a a pet at all? Will he speak softly to you? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) he'll eat you. Will he make a covenant? Uh, with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Can you make him useful in any way for farming or for uh, working in the factory or something? No. Uh, can you take him out hunting for birds or something? You like, can do that with a dog. Crocodiles are no good for that. Will you play with him as with a bird, like a pet you'd have in your house, or will you unleash him for your maidens? In other words, you come home and say, look, honey, I got your pet, (laughs) a crocodile, you know. Uh, No, you can't do that with these animals. Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? In other words, is he a good food source? And he isn't a good food source for the simple reason that in ancient times you couldn't capture enough of them for anyone to know what they tasted like to develop an appetite for them. So there's no market for them because nobody could capture them. Can you fill his skin with harpoons uh, or his head with fishing spears? And so talking about uh, how, his, the, how uh, resistant his armor is to the weaponry of that day, lay your hand on him, God invites Job, and then remember the battle. And what will be the lesson of the battle? Never do it again. (laughs) So if there was anyone that tried to take on a a crocodile to domesticate it or bring it home as a pet or capture it for food, uh, God is saying, listen, you can give it a try, but if you survive it, you'll walk away with one great lesson. Uh, Add that to the list of things I never want to try again for the rest of my life. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the very sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. So if it's it's like you're walking along some kind of a, a, a riverbed or something where the crocodile is and you see a crocodile over there, what do you do? I don't care how brave you are. I don't care if you're a member of the Fantastic Four. You are not going to tackle that crocodile. And uh, so you're going to try and get away from him. It doesn't matter how uh, brave we are. No one in their right mind that doesn't want to be dinner is going to stir up a crocodile. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven is mine. And so God interrupts his discussion, or description rather, uh, of this crocodile in order to pose the question to Job. And that is, if men stand in such awe of this creature called a crocodile, and if they panic at the sight of a crocodile, then how much more will they panic Uh, and how much more should they fear the one who created the crocodile and recognize the folly of challenging him to meet me in court so I can prove him wrong. And so God is applying these things to Job in order to humble him, not in order to humiliate him, but in order to humble him and come to his senses. He said, as he continues his description, I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his uh, graceful proportions, speaking of the strength of the crocodile. Who can remove his outer coat and who can approach him with a double uh, bridle? And so speaking of that, again, that protective armor in his hide, who can open the doors of his face? That's cute, isn't it? Open your face. 
Who can open the doors of his face, speaking about his jaws, if he doesn't want to have them uh, opened? And with, with his terrible teeth all around, his sharp teeth, his rows of scales are his pride. They are tight, shut up tightly as with a seal. Uh, one is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another, they stick together, and cannot be parted. In other words, they were impenetrable for the weaponry of that day. And God knew, it's a creation of God. He knew how he created them. He knew them inside and out. In verse 18, Paul talking about his movements and, and the movements of his nose and his eyes and his mouth, his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke comes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and uh, burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. And so here you have a description of a, in, in my estimation, you have, crocodiles can stay submerged for as long as five minutes, and then when they come to the surface, uh, water has uh, begun to come into some of that cavity and all. They come to the surface and they blow that water out. And against the sunlight, then it looks like fire. It's poetic speech. It looks like fire uh, and steam or smoke coming out uh, of his nose and out of, uh, out of his, uh, his, his mouth. And so this description of him, strength dwells in his neck. Boy, does he have a neck. I mean, you don't know where the, the body and the head and the neck and the what. It's all, what a f- fierce, strong neck he has. Uh, all the better to twist you in pieces. Um, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, uh, able to bear the weight of, of this you know, armor that he wears when he is out of the water and on the ground. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. And of course, God made him that way. And then God speaks a little bit about uh, hunting the Leviathan. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. So those were the high-tech weapons of the day, and they were ineffective against the crocodile. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones uh, become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straws, and he laughs at the threat of javelins. So you throw a javelin at him, it bounces off of him, and then he laughs. (laughs) Ha, 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 before he eats you. And uh, his undersides are like sharp potsherds or broken pieces of pot. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. So when he goes up onto the shore, the mud, he leaves a track and and it looks like somebody has taken a kind of a sledge of broken potsherds and run it along through uh, the mud, speaking of the, you know, what his his underbelly is is, uh, also armored. He, take, he makes the deep uh, boil like a pot. And again, I just love the description. If you, don't, if you don't like it, then I'm killing you. But what can I say? So, but here it talks about, you see a crocodile sometimes again in those animal shows. And you know, they watch and the herd goes there and everything and all those crocodiles are sitting there. Or they see an animal get in across. The, you see the lions, king of the jungle, they get down there. They know crocodiles are around. They got their paw. You've never seen a lion so careful. You know, he's the king of the jungle. But he's not the king of the water thing. So he's real careful about that. You can quote me on that, by the way. And... Um, <laughs> So, but they're all very careful. And when they get a hold of an animal, what happens? I mean, the thrashing in the water is like the whole river is boiling at the moment as, as he's taking the prey and uh, then drowning it to then consume the prey uh, later. And he makes the sea like a pot of ointment. And he leaves a shining wake behind him 
One would think the deep had white hair. So it's talking about how fast he can make. Sometimes they go real slow through the water to sneak up on a prey. But when they need to move, they can move in the water. They've got that big old tail. Wouldn't that be handy if you're on the swim team? <laughs> so, so they got that big tail and they can move. And so he's talking about how the, the waves or the wake that they can produce looks like an older man's white hair going off to the side. In other words, beautiful... Uh, poetic speech. On earth, there's nothing like him which is made without fear. In other words, he fears nothing. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. No matter how proud a human being thinks they are, how arrogant, how great they are, a crocodile will humble them. They, you cannot whoop a crocodile. And, and so, and a crocodile knows it. So just know that ahead of time. And again, the point that God is making to Job here is that he needs to subdue these great beasts as a demonstration of his power. And then God is saying, we can talk about uh, turning the universe over to you uh, as God. We can talk seriously about it. And of course, Job realized he lacked the power to even dominate two animals in the animal kingdom, let alone to keep a track and a lid on pride and on, on wickedness. And then Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you can do everything. So he got the message. So when he says, I know you can do everything, he's talking about what we know as the omnipotence of God, that God is all-powerful. And he's saying, I know you are all-powerful and that I am not, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. God, I acknowledge the fact that I do not have the power to do even the small thing that you have challenged me to do here. You alone are qualified just on the basis of power. You are uniquely and you alone qualified to be God. You asked, and, and God, Job reposes the questions that God had asked to him earlier. You asked me, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And God had posed that question, and that is, who is this who keeps talking so much but doesn't know what in the world he's talking about? And, and Job said, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Who was talking so much and they didn't know what they were talking about? Job says, me. I didn't know. I had no idea what I was talking about and speaking about you. And he said, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer uh, me. And, and, and he, his answer to God's Posing that to him, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I've heard about you all my life, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I abhor myself, and the word abhor means to despise or to reject. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And, and so uh, the, Job had he had not seen God visually, nor had he been an eyewitness of creation. But these addresses by the Lord concerning his wisdom and his power and his providence provided Job with a vision of God that he hadn't had before in his whole life, a firsthand experience with God that he'd never possessed before. It wasn't that he saw God physically, but that his understanding of God as a result of this exchange had gone to uh, the greater revelation and understanding that comes with seeing as compared to hearing. So sometimes people will say, boy, you know, someday when I get into heaven, I got a few things I'm going to say to God. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Because the result will not be any better than what happened with Job in this situation. We do not understand the full context ever of what we are in the middle of. Only God understands that. And, and so, uh, this Job, his statements concerning God, there was a great pride behind those statements. And so he said, therefore, I abhor myself, I humble myself, I despise, I reject myself, I repent. And this is what God was wanting all along in dust 
and in ashes. He doesn't want to enter into a confrontation with God anymore. All he wants to do is be right with God now and repent of, of his words and his accusation and just the strongest words and then also to repent of the pride that birthed those words uh, that he spoke. Now, it's interesting to realize none of his questions had been answered at this point. His circumstances had not changed one bit. He still covered head to toe with open boils that are oozing pus, and he's just the, the physical mess that he is at the moment. None of that has changed. The loss of everything that he's owned or treasured in life next to his wife, all of that's still gone. So none of his questions have been answered. None of his circumstances have changed, but they no longer matter to Job in the light of the majesty of God. And the solution to all of his frustration, all of his confusion, did not come with the answers to all of his questions, but it came in a greater revelation of God and a deeper relationship with God. That's where things got solved for him. We'll return to that in just a moment. The epilogue or the final kind of chapter that wraps everything up related to Job begins in verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, one of the three so-called comforters, and, and God speaks of Eliphaz. He's recorded by name here probably because he was the oldest of the three. And he was the first one who began speaking to Job and kind of set this whole lousy discussion in motion. And so he introduced the theme, uh, uh, the false theme of all of this. And the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, this had to be a jaw-dropper to them because in their mind, as they're sitting here witnessing this whole thing, God is laying out this whole rebuke of Job so then he can body-slam Job. Say, if you'd have just listened to your three friends, then all of this would have been made better. So that's the expectation they have. God now turns to Eliphaz and the two friends and he begins to speak to them and, and it, it would have, again, like a bomb going off inside of their head to realize they're expecting commendation from God and God comes and rebukes them and rebukes them in very, very strong uh, language here. And so they had claimed to be representing the holiness and the reputation of God, but they had done so incorrectly. They said, this is how God always works. If a, if a person is righteous, they'll always prosper in this life, material and physically. And if they don't ma prosper material and physically and they have great catastrophe come into their life, it must be because of secret sin. And they represented God by virtue of a, a formula that is just terrible. This would, if that, that would just put any number of us in this room in terrible condemnation if that were true. But it isn't true. So they've just horribly misrepresented God. We talked about it this morning where James said, be not many masters for you're going to face the harsher judgment. And so here they had claimed to represent God. They had terribly misrepresented God. And God really calls them on the carpet uh, for this. And so Job was right in declaring that he was innocent of secret sin and that this was the reason for God's judgment in his life. And so God said concerning Job that uh, you have, that as Job, my servant Job has, has, has spoken, that is that he has spoken uh, right. And, and so Job had been right about his confessions concerning himself. And now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourself a burnt offering, which represents a, a total or a fresh consecration to the Lord, 
and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what was right, as my servant Job has. And so this is the means of restoration that God gives to these three men. And I want you to offer these sacrifices, seven being the number of, of completion and expression of their complete repentance um, and, and, and an expression of their complete fresh new consecration to God in light of the mistakes that they have made. And don't look at it as something like, oh boy, this was some terrible thing that they had to do. Um, it's a wonderful thing that God gave them the opportunity to offer sacrifices in order to be restored into relationship with him. Uh, it's, it's fabulous that God confronts us with our sin and then tells us how we can restore intimacy with God. So this wasn't some terrible thing that God was doing to them. Now, there has been terrible, terrible damage done in this relationship between Job and these three men. I mean, you look at what they said to him and, and what they did to him in his one moment of vulnerability in life. Job will never need these friends ever again for the rest of his life the way he needed them for just those six months. So the opportunity's been lost now. And this has the potential to be a very, very bitter season in all of their lives. And very easy for Job to head down into unforgiveness toward them, be bitter toward them, and for them to spend the rest of their life in condemnation over how it is that they treated Job. And that's the crazy thing about it is, you know, here we are, we handle people a certain way for where we are in our relationship with God. But these men are not dead yet. As long as we're living and we're growing in our relationship with God, and then we look back on certain circumstances and we say, boy, if I had that to do over again, I would handle that completely differently. And we need a way for God to look and say, listen, I give second chances, and we learn, uh, you learn from mistakes, and you can do better the next time. And God is going to give them that kind of an opportunity. But there's this chance now for a great bitterness to occur in this. And God is going to make sure it doesn't happen. And it was going to require a lot of Job's friends and it was going to require a lot of Job in order for God to bring about a happy, a happy ending. God is always working. I have watched it through the years so many times where some bitter experience has occurred in a Christian's life that could just keep them bitter against another person or persons for the rest of their life and the other person to feel shame over it for the rest of their life and to watch God work both of those ends to bring a reconciliation in the relationship. And it requires a lot of both people. It requires Christ-likeness in both people to allow that to happen. God will never stop working until he, he loves happy endings among his children and among his people, and he will never stop working until he brings reconciliation. So it was going to require a lot of Job to accept their sacrifices and to come to Job in order for him to pray for them. And it's interesting, they never prayed for Job. Now, one time in the six months or however long they were there, and yet when God gets to the end here, he wants Job to pray for these three men. I don't think, I think one of the hardest things to do is to maintain an attitude of bitterness toward a person that we pray for. It's just one or the other. You're either, we're either going to stop praying for the person or we're going to lose that bitterness. It's just the way that it happens. Now, you notice in verse 9, so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar, Zophar the Namanathite, they went and they did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. Now, you've got to give credit where it's due. And I don't think, it, I, and we're capable of doing everything that Job did in this situation. We're capable of doing everything that his three friends did. God spoke to them, told them they were wrong, 
told them how to make it right, and you got to give them credit. They obeyed God. They gave God their obedience to work with in the situation to bring reconciliation to the situation. I don't know how many of us in this room might be sitting on some bitterness towards some other person, and they have sinned against us far less than these men sinned against Job. And so it really kind of is a rebuke to that kind of thing that would be in our heart. And so this was a hard thing for these men to do. These are older men. These are men of great reputation, and yet they're willing to humble themselves, admit they're wrong, and do what God tells them to do to make the situation right. When you've been put down, sit down, especially when it's God that's done that, and they were willing to do that. I'll tell you, I w- wouldn't it be nice if we never had to deal with being humbled? One day in heaven we will, but I, th- this Christian life, the longer we go and we'll never hit an age, and it gets harder the older we get to admit that we're wrong and to make a relationship right. And they were willing to do it. And I'll tell you, it's, it's there to be commended for it. And the Lord then restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. And indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And uh, then all of his brothers, all of his sisters, all those who had been his acquaintances before, they came to him, they ate food with him and his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought on him. Well, better late than never. Would have meant a lot more 48 hours earlier or two weeks earlier but they had missed that opportunity. And so they used the opportunity that, that they did have. And, and so they, they did what they could, and each one then gave Job a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. And so he evidently had quite a large family members and friends that came to him to comfort him and to console him. Uh, and it's probably likely that with that wealth that he received, he then began to, um, you know, buy the starter livestock for the herds that God was going to bless him with and, and all. God didn't just go boom and all of a sudden he's got tens of thousands of animals that he owns. He probably used that and God just using all of these circumstances to add uh, to his wealth. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning For he had 14,000 sheep, and remember he had had 7,000 before, 6,000 camels, twice as much as before, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And again, we're talking about a day when if you own two of those animals, you're a pretty wealthy person. And then the Lord also, uh, and then also he, Job, also had seven sons and three daughters. And so uh, the Lord uh, blessed him with more sons and with, with more daughters. And so Job ends up with, he ended up with 20 children. So he had 10 in heaven, and now he has 10 on the earth. Never read the book of Job and the restoration of those children and ever assume that God believed that giving him these 10 children took away the pain of the loss of the other ten children, and Job just went on like it had never happened. No, child, no parent loses one child and, and, and ever just moves on from it for the rest of their life. So, but God was not doing that. What God was doing was giving him another family now, not to replace the family that he had had, but to be a comfort and a joy to him in the remainder uh, of his life. And the children are spoken of here. The seven sons are left kind of out, but the three daughters are, uh, were elaborations are made on them. And he called the name of the first uh, uh, Jemima, the, and her name means dove, so it's probably characterized by quietness and peacefulness. Uh, the name of the second was uh, Keziah, and that her name means cinnamon, so an aromatic 
uh, fragrance in those days. So uh, speaking of kind of perfume and, uh, and that. And then the name of the third was Karin uh, Hapuk or whatever it is. And it literally means the horn of eye paint. And a horn of eye paint was a little horn. There was a little thing that they would put eye makeup in, and then they would put it on their lashes around their eyes to make their eyes even more big and more beautiful and all of that kind of thing. And uh, so, again, talking about kind of cosmetics here and those kind of things. And so, here these women, the, these daughters, uh, in all the land were told they were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And so it was quite a thing for a, a father to have beautiful daughters like this. If you're looking for a case in the Bible for cosmetics, by the way, and perfumes, lady, uh, here it is right here, I guess. And that's old, old covenant, though. And, um, but uh, just accentuating their beauty. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. It was unusual in those days for a father to give an equal inheritance to daughters. Uh, as well as the sons, but he did that. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So he lived to see his great-great-grandchildren. Now you remember earlier, he's just saying all the time, and early on in the trial, I just pray if God would just have mercy on me. I wish I'd never been born, and I wish God would just kill me. Praise the Lord for prayers that God doesn't answer. I am so thankful for prayers that God answers, but I'm also thankful that sometimes when I pray for something and then I go a little bit further down the road and I see it's just a little glimmer of what God was up to and I realize that would have been a disaster if he had answered my prayer as I was asking him to do so. Thank you, Lord, for disregarding that prayer. And he does that in his grace and in his, his wisdom. And so Job died old and full of days. And so the idea is that not only he had a long life, but it means that he had a rich, full life as, as well. And uh, so the, this beautiful picture of his life, God bringing back his reputation and bringing back his life. And remember earlier we were talking about the fact that as they were accusing him and accusing him and accusing him of so many things that God would, um, would defend his reputation. And uh, God did defend his reputation and God will defend our, our reputation as well. Now we have to be careful not to think that the book of Job teaches that for the child of God, every earthly trial is going to end up with uh, restored wealth and restored health and, and, uh, and, and personal relationships and maybe even double of what we had uh, before. What Job teaches us, among other things, is that God will always have the final say in any trial in our lives. Always. He will always have the final say in any circumstance or trial in our lives. The circumstance will not have the final say. Other people will not have the final say. God will always have the final say. And so we can rest in him that he's going to work all things together for our good, but also for his glory, as Romans chapter 8, verse 28 declares. Now, one of the things that is very fascinating to me about the book of Job <clears throat> is that in God's personal exchange with Job, he never brought up Job's suffering, not once. God never spoke one peep, not one word about Job's suffering, and he never explained the cause of the suffering. He didn't enter into a discussion with Job on the origin of evil or the theology of evil or the theology of suffering. And God did not answer not one, not a single one of Job's why questions. Now, I wouldn't have expected that, candidly. I would have expected God to give Job a thorough explanation for all the events that had occurred. In other words, Job, your life was such a blessing to me. I made mention of you and your godly character to the devil. 
And then the devil came to me and he contended that you and everyone else that follows me like you, they only do it for the material blessings and, and not for the relationship with me, that you love me for the blessings more than you love me, and that if I allowed him to take away your blessings, you'd curse me to my face. And so I allowed the devil to put his thesis to the test in your life. And as all of the angels in heaven and all the demonic forces of the devil watched to see your response, you remained faithful to me, communicating that your relationship to me meant more to you than everything else in life. And Job, that's the whole thing that's been going on. You've been a case study. You've been a test for the entire angelic realm. You proved once and for all the accusation false of the devil that people only follow me for the blessings and not for the relationship. And so that's the big picture of what you were in the middle of. That's what I thought. That's what I would have expected God to do. But Job, there's no record that Job ever knew in his entire lifetime that that was happening around his life. God never explained the trial that he was in. Never gave that to him. God never explained to Job what he, what he did do instead of explaining himself to Job is that he gave Job a greater revelation of himself. And in doing so, he was proving to Job that he was worthy of his trust. I think this is the great lesson of the book of Job, that when we find ourselves in these kind of circumstances, we think the greatest need in our life is an explanation from God. And it isn't. And God knows that it isn't. God knows that the greatest need in our life is a greater revelation of him that takes us into a deeper relationship with him. And so what did God do in terms of giving Job a greater revelation of himself? He gave Job a greater revelation of his wisdom, address number one, his power, address number two, and his love by restoring his life. That's what he gave Job, not an explanation, but a greater revelation of his wisdom and of his power and of his love. And we think that we will be satisfied with an explanation, but we won't. Because then one explanation will then cause us to act, require another explanation and another explanation related to the same situation. And then the next situation hits and we'll want another explanation. And there is no peace in that at the time when we desperately need peace. The peace is found in understanding in a greater measure the greatness of God's wisdom his power, and his love for me and resting in that. And when we go through life, how things happen, when big kind of catastrophes or difficulty trials occur like they did with Job, here we are, we're just going along, minding our own business and walking. We've got a great walk with the Lord and a great relationship with the Lord. And the life that we have, we've processed that life in the light of God's promises up to this place. And then, boom, this happens in our life. And then now what we have to do in this new situation that we find ourselves in is process it in the light of the greatness of God's wisdom, his power, and his love, and to go deeper in the relationship with him. And we have a greater revelation of the wisdom and the power and the love of God than Job ever had because we have the greatest revelation of his wisdom, power, and love, and that is found in the person of Jesus himself. And the key in times like this is to go deeper in our relationship with God. That's the solution, not the explanations. That's why Jesus uh, spoke, and he said, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. Peace. 
In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The solution is a deeper relationship with the Lord. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The key is always when some bombshell occurs like it did with Job is to immediately not to waste time demanding an explanation but because that is a waste of time the great need is I need to go even deeper in my relationship with Jesus Christ than I ever have before and to begin that process and how do we do it? Word of God Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of the day and he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. And as we turn to the scriptures and we begin to learn about the greatness of Jesus' wisdom and his power and his love, then it gives us that ability to, to realize that I can't entrust this situation into any better hands than into his hands. I can't know any greater peace in my life than to commit them to this Jesus who is described on the pages of this book and who lives inside of my heart. That's, that To do that is superior than to ask for an explanation. And then the second great thing is the importance of prayer. And so when the bombshells can hit in life, and they can hit, it's a waste of time to demand an explanation of God. Take every available moment to go deeper in a relationship with God and learning his word in a greater measure in light of who he is and what he says he is in the light of what we're facing and then to grow in the intimacy of that relationship with him through prayer and just talking things over with him the peace is found in the relationship. It is not found in an explanation. And God knows it. And those of you who have been through deep, deep trials and deep, deep difficulties in your life, you know it to be true as well. Father, we thank you tonight that we have you to trust in. And Lord, we thank you for this long history of your faithfulness in our lives when every time we needed a greater revelation of you to be able to safely and peacefully navigate some new thing that happened in our life, you had that revelation for us. And we thank you that what you have been, you will always be. Thank you tonight that we do not trust in explanations, but that we have the privilege of trusting in so great and so wise and so loving a God as you. We give you praise for it tonight, Lord, not only with our lips, but from our hearts, which you see, Lord, open before you. We give you praise. We give you praise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.